Amen. I want to say a special thank you to Brian who jumped in last minute due to sickness on the team. So thanks, Brian, for jumping in to be a part of things here this weekend. A holiday weekend. You get time and a half, Brian. Time and a half for, uh, for our volunteers here at uh, Chatham Community Church for working on the holiday weekend. Uh, well, hey, listen, I hope that all y'all had a good Thanksgiving. I hope that you uh, settled into a happy turkey coma on Thursday afternoon and uh, that it was uh, pleasing, that there wasn't too much family drama, able to enjoy uh, time away and time together. And again, if you're new with us, welcome, welcome, welcome. We're so glad you're here. This is Thanksgiving is done, Christmas straight ahead, right? And December is, for some of you, it gives you like twitchy hives. And for some of you, it brings joy and jubilation, right? Uh, but it's a busy time, right? All the commercials, all the energy, lots of things to do and parties to go to and presents to wrap and all that kind of thing. And part of what we're doing over the course of these next several weeks is trying to get to that place where we're able to sort of uh, anchor down, root down into the good news of what Christmas is all about, right? The Advent lighting is one of the ways we do that. And throughout the course of this season, we're going to be looking at this, uh, a series of, uh, called Unspeakable Joy. Uh, joy just rings out throughout the whole Christmas story, right? It's everywhere throughout the Christmas story. And joy itself runs deeper than sentimentality, deeper than circumstances. It's this, it's this uh, an energy, a power available to everyone who puts their hope in Jesus. A couple weeks ago, there was a major snowstorm in Buffalo. Did you see that? Did you see how, how many of you saw the six feet of snow that got in Buffalo? How many of you are yet again glad you don't live in Buffalo? Amen. There we go. Things to be thankful for here on Thanksgiving weekend. I don't live in Buffalo. And many reasons. Why? Well, much further north from Buffalo, right, Canada and Alaska, there is, uh, there's this thing called permafrost, right, that doesn't matter what happens on the ground, it's always frozen underneath, okay? So that, that layer of permafrost is there no matter what happens on the surface. It waxes and wanes, but there's this thing underneath it that's always, always there. The Christmas story is the invitation to a layer of permajoy in your life. No matter what's going on on the surface, no matter what's happening in circumstances, it gets hot, it gets cold, it rains, it's sunshine. There's a layer of permajoy available to each of us in Christ Jesus. Not merely warm fuzzies. And even though it, 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 there's space for grieving and, and sorrow and loss, there's a, a availability uh, to us, that, this knowledge that all shall be well because of the baby born 2,000 years ago. Good news for you this morning. No matter how you're entering, in, entering into kind of Christmas and Advent 2022, joy is available to you. So today we're going to kick off this first Sunday of Advent and look at the story where Matthew starts his story of the birth of Jesus. We're going to talk, we're going to look at a genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. Genealogy is so cool these days, right? Genealogy is so cool. How many of you have done a genealogy thing before? Like you've done the swab or whatever, right? You've looked into, right? Yeah. It's, before it was cool, Matthew did it. Before genealogies were trendy, Matthew launches his whole account of Jesus' life with a genealogy. So as Matthew sits down to write his account of Jesus' life, he's got a very, very Jewish audience in mind. He quotes the Old Testament more than anyone else, any other, than any other gospel writer. And Matthew knows that to convince his Jewish audience that Jesus actually is the promised one, the Messiah, he needs to sort of anchor the whole story of Jesus in the story of what became before Jesus. There's all these different things, prophecies and promises from the Old Testament that Jesus needs to fulfill. And and there's a couple of major important players that Jesus needs to be linked to for Jesus to actually be the Messiah. Now, this is really important because in and around Matthew's time, there's any number of would-be messiahs. All kinds of people saying, I'm the Messiah. I've been sent by God to save us from Roman tyranny, right? The Romans have kind of conquered their nation. And there's all these people saying, follow me, I will deliver us from Rome. And all of them had a tragic ending. Many of them probably were crucified because the Romans enjoyed doing that kind of thing to would-be revolutionaries. So Matthew has to prove that Jesus is different. 
Even though his story ended like many of their stories did, at least if you don't know about the resurrection, right? He looked a lot like another failed Messiah. So Matthew has to build a case for Jesus being the actual Messiah and to a Jewish audience. And the only way that he can sort of be in that line is if he's a part of the larger family of promises that God makes to a couple of key people. And so Matthew starts his account of Jesus, Matthew 1, verse 1, with sort of leading off with two major boxes that Jesus has to check. So here's Matthew 1, verse 1. It says this, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, Son of Abraham. Do you remember back in middle school, like you learned about like making a persuasive argument or essay, right? You have a persuasive argument, essay, you have a thesis or a thing you're trying to prove, and then you've got supporting arguments, right? Kind of that sort of fill it in. So here in Matthew 1, Matthew launches off with his thesis, his persuasive. Here's what he's trying to prove. Jesus the Messiah. And he's got two boxes he's going to check. Son of Abraham and son of David. Again, he's trying to prove that Jesus actually is the Messiah, the legit Messiah, unlike the other ones that have failed before him previously. And there's two covenants that, that, that whoever the Messiah is has to check, two boxes he has to check. And one, is with da- one has to do with Abraham, the other has to do with David. So back on Genesis 12, back in Genesis 12, page 12 of the Bible, God makes a promise to Abraham, and that's the Abrahamic covenant, that your family become a great nation, and through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. Jesus has to be a part of the family of Abraham if he's going to be the legit Messiah, the actual one that's sent by God. So that's the covenant, the first covenant that has to be checked, uh, the box he has to check in order to be like the resume of Jesus the Messiah. The second important covenant is the, uh, the promise that God made to David that he would have a person from his family who would be a king forever, whose kingdom would never, ever end. The king, the king forever covenant, a.k.a. the KFC covenant, aren't you hungry now? The KFC covenant, you're going to have a king in your family forever and ever on the throne. His kingdom will never, ever end. So Matthew leads off with his thesis. Jesus is the Messiah. And here's the two key boxes he has to check. He's a child of Abraham, check. He's a child of David, check. These things are kind of crucial for Jesus to actually be the legit Messiah. But in every crowd, there's at least one skeptic, and some of you are that person. So Matthew knows that skeptics are skeptical. Of especially of sweeping statements. And so he says, listen, I know I just said that, but I'm going to prove it. I'm going to walk you through the whole lineage. So Matthew says to the skeptic, I see you're out there. I'm going to walk you through the whole lineage of Jesus to trace that Jesus actually checks this box. So Matthew leads off his account of Jesus with the longest genealogy ever in history. And we're going to read it right now. You ready? Matthew 1. We're going to highlight a few key names, and I'm going to fumble through some of them, but that's okay. It's part of how it goes. Matthew 1, starting in verse 2. Here's the promise. We're going to highlight a few key names and come back to them. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. We'll come back to her later. Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, we'll come back to her, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, we'll come back to her, Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of King David, there he is, David the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, aka Bathsheba, we'll come back to her later, Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asa, Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram, Jehoram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, Ammon the father of Josiah, Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Come back to the exile later. After exile to Babylon, Jeconiah the father of Sheltiel, Sheltiel the father of Zerubbabel, 
Zerubbabel, the father of Abihad, Abihad, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Akim, Akim, the father of Elihud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Nathan, Nathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, husband of Mary, Mary, the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Amen, amen, and amen. There we go. All right. Did you ever get an outcome that you wanted, but it didn't quite get there the way you hoped it would? Did you ever get an outcome that you hoped would happen, but it didn't quite land the way that you thought it might? Lots of people wanted the Messiah to come. This is why these revolutionaries would pop up and they would get a crowd and people would follow them. Like People were eager for the Messiah to happen. But the way that Matthew outlines it happening is not how they thought it would happen. It wasn't the outcome or the way that they thought how they would get there. As this genealogy runs through, basically the genealogy is sort of a highlight of the whole Old Testament. It's kind of hitting, it's, it's hitting all these moments of the, the, the Old Testament. And it's not just highlights, there's lots of lowlights as well. A bunch of failed kings in there who did not follow the Lord. Some, of, uh, some really dark days, some really hard times, some, some big failures, all listed throughout the genealogy. There's no cover-up in this genealogy. It's as raw and uh, like honest as it possibly can be. And in this genealogy, there's also a few really key unexpected characters. Uh, a couple of those are four women, some Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and then Bathsheba. She had been Uriah's wife. Listing these four women would have been a surprise to a first century kind of Jewish audience in general. But it's on top of that, Almost all of them are, like, are parts of Israel's really dark story, like some really hard times. Okay, so let me give you some examples. Tamar is a widow who disguises herself as a prostitute to sleep with her former father-in-law to have kids. That's weird. If it's the Rahab that we think it is, Rahab actually was a prostitute. We're not sure if that's the right Rahab, but it may be that she was actually a prostitute. Ruth is one of the neatest, cleanest stories. She's got her own book. She's got her own book in the Bible named after her, but it's a really hard time, and she's on the edge of starvation and barely making it. And then Bathsheba is the one that King David sends for while her, her husband is away in, on military. He basically forces her to sleep with him. This is like one of his like, biggest transgressions in his whole story. So not only are these stories dark, they're, like, they're not positive stories, not like warm, fuzzy stories. Almost all of them, at least three of the four, maybe all four are not Jewish, not from the family of Abraham, not who they thought would be in the line of Jesus, the Messiah. And so it turns out God made promises, and it turns out God's going to fulfill those promises. But it turns out the path to fulfilling those promises is not straight and up and to the right, right? It's winding. It takes unexpected twists and turns. God is going to fulfill his promises, but it's not always going to take the form or fashion that you think it might or expect it might. And so I want to suggest, and I want to suggest that as we light the hope candle today for Advent, I want to suggest to you that this is what true hope looks like. True hope is being expected that God's at work without an agenda for how God's at work. True hope is saying, hey, I know God's at work. I trust God's at work. But I'm releasing my picture of what I want that to, like, to what it looks like or my expectation for how it might play out. We're, we're expecting God's going to do something, but we are faithfully agnostic as to how it's going to happen. Ambivalent. God's going to work. I don't know how it's going to be. I don't, I don't know. I don't, have, I don't have a plan. It doesn't fit a certain way. I'm open to how God's going to do whatever God's going to do. I just trust that he's good. He's faithful. And I'm going to have my eyes open for how he's going to answer his promises. Because what, what that does, it frees us up to have eyes to see how God's actually at work, what he's actually doing. Because here's what happens. Coming into Christmas, December 2022, some of, us have, some of us have problems. We want God to fix them. Some of us have issues. We want God to solve. 
Some of us have things that we're begging and pleading and knocking on the door and asking God to do. And some of us have opportunities that we want God to open up. If God would just open up that opportunity, that job, fix that problem, mend that relationship, if God would just do this thing, then all would be well. And then those are good things. And I want you to invite to continue to pray and fight for those things in prayer. But sometimes we're so fixed on what we want God to do over here that the stirrings are over here and we don't see them, right? We're so fixed on this problem, this opportunity over here that there's small and even medium-sized stirrings over here that we don't have eyes to see. We're too focused on this thing over here. And again, these things over here, they're good things. We're invited to pray over those things, ask for God to move in those things. But my friends, part of what it means for us to enter into a real hope, a living hope, is that we trust that God's at work and we release what that looks like and the outcome, that, it, that the, the process of how getting there has to look like. Matthew 1 teaches us that God can do more than we could ask or imagine in ways that we couldn't have asked or imagined. God is good, the scriptures say, to do more than we could ask or imagine, but he might do it in ways that we couldn't have asked for or imagined. And so my friends, as we head into this season, if you've got stuff in your life you want God to fix, if you've got things going on that you want God to mend or heal or, or do some work in, by all means, keep asking those questions. Keep asking for God to move in a certain way. But this morning, here, Thanksgiving weekend, 2022, can you surrender that to the Lord? Can you release that agenda? And say, God, here's what I want you to do, but I'm going to be open-handed about it. And I want to be eyes wide open. And if you want to move in this area over here, I want to have eyes to see how you're moving in some other area. And I want to be on board. I trust that you're good and that you're working and that you're faithful. And I want to have eyes to see how you're at work, wherever it might look. My friends, some of you are in places where you've kind of given up hope. Just given up hope that God could move, God could work. It's been too hard, too heartbreaking for too long. Matthew 1 reminds us the good news. God's always working. God's always working. God's always working. And we see that in how he summarizes this genealogy, right? The very end of the genealogy, Matthew summarizes it this way. 14 generations from Abraham to David. 14 generations from David to the exile in Babylon. 14 from the exile in Babylon to the Messiah. Four anchor points. Abraham, David, exile, Messiah. Remember the Old Testament street? One of these songs, one of these things is not like the other. Which, of, which one of these doesn't look like it belongs? Exile, right? Exile. What's exile doing there? Abraham? Totally. David? Yes. Messiah? Jesus? Awesome. What's exile doing there? Here's the good news, my friends. Exile is not an accidental part of Jesus' story. Exile is integral to what Jesus is doing and why he's coming. Exile pops off the page. Because it's not a person, not a promise, not, the, not something that anyone looked for or hoped for. There wasn't, there's nothing in that that looks, looks life-giving. But Jesus has come to rescue people in exile. That's what he's come to do. Now, I don't know about you, but this year for me, going into the holidays, I'm, all, I'm here for it. I'm like, I'm all in. Like, I love the music, the decorations, the, the energy, the pomp, the circumstance. I, I love it. Like, this, this is me and my baseline. But some years, I'm, I haven't been like that, right? Some years, all that, all that energy, all that joy has felt super far away. And if you're in a heavy place during the holidays, it can be really ch challenging, right? Because all month long, it can feel like someone, people are shouting at you, why can't you just be happy like everyone else? You're going to have a December where you're not ready to have a holly jolly Christmas. If you live long enough, you're going to have a December where you're not ready to sing joy to the world so easily. Good news, my friends. Christmas comes to people in exile. Christmas comes to a nation that's not ready for holly jolly Christmas either. 
They're not, they're not strong. They're not joyful. They're not, there's not good things happening. There are challenges. There's heartbreak. There's setback. There's so much difficulty happening when Jesus comes to that first people in exile. They're groaning under exile. They're exhausted under exile. They're in difficulty. And hope puts on flesh and blood to intersect a people in exile. Abraham, David, exile, Jesus. The, first, the, the exile started 597 B.C., 600 years before Jesus. Babylonians come through, conquer Jerusalem. They cart off the best and the brightest. They leave behind a shell of a people back in Judah, back in Jerusalem, back in Israel. And for the next 600 years, that goes from the Babylonians to the Persians to the Greeks to the Romans. 600 years, 14 generations under exile. And there's a few flashpoints of, of good moments or uh, surprising victories, militarily victories, but they're super short-lived and they're extinguished rather quickly by whoever is sort of opposing them. And then there's some stories of people who are super faithful in exile. Some of you know the stories, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. These are four men who are super faithful to God, even while in exile, even while carted off to Babylon. There's people who are living faithfully in exile. But my friends, 14 generations of exile is an exhausting time to be, 600 years. It's a long time to be in exile. It's at this point, it's at that point, hope puts on flesh. And Jesus comes not just to redeem Israel's story of exile. Jesus comes to redeem the exile story for all of us. Because there's a larger story, a bigger story than even Israel's story. And that story reads something like this. God creates not just a nation or a people, he creates a whole world. And that world, he says, is good, 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 and very good. And then the keys to that world are handed over to sin and death. Scripture says that sin and death reigned over all creation, all the earth. Scripture says that basically all this beautiful creation, everything that's good, 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 and very good, has been sent into exile under foreign rule, under foreign occupation. All of us, the whole world lives in exile under the reign of sin and death. And in many ways... Israel being an occupied people for 600 years. That's just one demonstration, just one example of what it means to live life here under the reign of sin and death. Just one picture of what it means to be a people who are living in exile under occupied powers, under a foreign power. Israel's occupation in exile is just a picture of what it means for all of us to live under the weight of a world that is not as it should be. And today, if you're going into Christmas season and you're just not feeling it, you're on the struggle bus, you imagine you're gonna be on the struggle bus for the rest of the holiday season Good news. The hope of Christmas comes to people laboring under the weight of life in exile, just like you. Jesus comes to a nation in exile to redeem all people, all people out of exile. That's why Jesus has come. Jesus comes to people living under the weight of a foreign occupying ruler, in this case, sin and death, to redeem all of us. And that word redemption is really important. It's throughout the New Testament. That word redemption is market language. It was often in, it was used in many places, but especially used in slave trading. And the way that you redeem someone out of slavery was you paid the price to pull that person out of slavery. Jesus has come to pay the price. How is, what price is he gonna pay? He's gonna pay with his whole life to redeem all peoples out of exile, out of slavery. How do those people get out of exile? How do we realize our freedom? How do we realize our freedom? We trust in the one who's paid the price. We put our faith in the one who's paid the price. We receive the good news that God has sent his son 
to pay the redemption price, to pull you and me out of exile into joy to the world. Now, one of the challenges that Matthew has for his first century audience is he's saying, Messiah's come. The exile's over, but they're saying the Romans are still here. We're still living under the reign of the Romans. So what does it mean for us to live in light of this Messiah who's come, but there's still, we're still in occupied t- territory, still in occupied land, an occupied nation? One of, the, one of the challenges for many of us is, how do I know that God is real, that Jesus has come, that there's joy to the world when there's pain and brokenness in my story? Listen, my friends, I am never shocked at, at, at the pain and brokenness in our lives, but every time I get lunch or coffee with one of you, I'm, I'm never shocked, but I'm always surprised again at how much pain there is in this room. Within five seats of you, there's more pain than you know or can imagine. More heartbreak, more heartache than you know or imagine. Within just a few seats of you, there's pain here in this room. And some of that pain was just life and the hard, hardness of this world. Some of that pain is self-inflicted. We just have done dumb things along the way and had consequences. But there's so much pain, so much brokenness. How do we know? How can we trust that there's joy, there's, there's, there's permanent joy available to us in Jesus? Well, that's the invitation. The invitation of Christmas is to know that to a people in exile, people laboring under the weight of exile, hope has come. Redemption has come. So the question becomes for us, how do we live and the redemptive hope of Jesus while we still live in exile. That was the problem for the first century Jewish people. It's a problem for us too. How do we live in the redemptive hope of Jesus while still living in this place that is not as it should be, that still leaves us mark in our lives, right? So uh, that's, that's today's wildly important take home. I'm gonna kind of walk through this kind of slowly. We're gonna kind of unpack this a little bit. I wanna give you a few key things, some things that you can do stepping into this season to help you access the hope we just lit the candle out and the unspeakable joy, that layer of perma-joy that is available. Here are some steps that you can take to help you to enter into this season. You won't, be, you won't need to do all these. For some of us, we'll need to do more or less of any one of these things. But I want to give you some steps that you can take this afternoon that can help you to enter into sort of the reality of the hope of Jesus. It's deeper than the circumstances you have in front of you, the challenge you have in you, but it also is deeper than the nostalgia and the Hallmark Christmas movies on loop over and over again in some of your homes, right? It's deeper than nostalgia, deeper than sentimentality, deeper than pain, heartbreak, or sorrow. There's true joy, unspeakable joy. How do we access that? How do we start to move in that direction? There's some practices. You can't generate it, but there are some practices that can help you to access it. So here's a, here's a, a first step. The first step is Lament. It's a rather counterintuitive move to joy. But here's, here's biblical lament. Lament in the scriptures is grief over what should not be directed to the God who agrees and who one day will make all things new. Lament in the scriptures is grief over what should not be directed to a God who agrees 100% there are things that should not be and who one day will make all things new. Now, it's a rather counterintuitive to say the path to joy is lament. It starts with lament. But, but if any of you know, are familiar with the, uh, like the recovery group, like Alcoholics Anonymous or whatever, the first step is always to admit the problem, right? Admit the problem. There's a problem. And for some of us, we need to sort of come face-to-face and deal with the fact that there is a problem, that there are things in our lives and challenges in our lives and brokenness in our lives that should not be. Some of those things have been put upon us. Some of those are things that we have done and we brought upon ourselves. But lament is grounded in the goodness of God and trust in the goodness of God and wrestles honestly with the challenges of life here in exile. Now, we're not very good at lament. Like, we're, we're, we're better at one or the other. We're, we're better at either pretending there aren't problems or getting stuck and wallowing in them. Like, we, we kind of tend to either extreme. 
But the, but the invitation, biblical invitation to lament is actually the third way of neither ignoring the pain of, and heartache of life in this world, but nor is it getting stuck and wallowing in it indefinitely. The original reason behind Advent, the original reason behind Advent, like back when the, 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 the church calendar was first invented, they first created it, the Advent season was actually not preparation for Christmas. You know what it was? It was preparation for Jesus' second coming. The whole season of Advent was praying, Jesus, come quickly, come back, come back come back. Lord Jesus, would you come back soon? It was a longing for the king to make all things right and new in a world that is not right and new, that is still living in exile. The gift of lament keeps us anchored around God, keeps us oriented around God. It keeps us in the hope of redemption and Christmas, and at the same time, it invites us into the heartache and the difficulties of life in this place, what, what, without declaring that the problems are bigger than God. Lament keeps God the main thing and our problems smaller than God, but it keeps us also from skating over, pretending things aren't difficult. For some of you, this is where you need to start today. Before you put up the tree this afternoon, before you start decorating the house, for some of you, you need to sort of pause and say, you know what, I just need to be honest about where things are hard for me this season. Maybe you need to pull out a psalm of lament. The psalms are great at lamenting. They're, they're a great place to go. If you struggle, just go home, Google psalms of lament, and just sort of sit in some psalms of lament that are sort of speaking to God about things that aren't right and keeping you anchored in the God of the universe. Maybe you need to pull out a word doc or a journal and just sort of type up or write up a prayer or a poem or some sort of reflective piece that sort of invites you into lament before the Lord. Or maybe you need to grab lunch with somebody here in the room and say, hey, can we just grab lunch today? I just need to sort of process a little bit of what's going on with me and maybe invite you to lament with me. Lament is grief over what should not be directed to the God who agrees with you. There are things in this world that should not be and who one day will make all things new. Lament's not something we're all going to need to do this December, this Christmas season, but for some of you that would be the most important work you could do. The only way you're going to get to hope and to joy is if you spend a beat, maybe longer than a beat, working through lament. Second, the second step I want to invite you into as we head into the season of Advent to help you access this sort of hope and this joy to be able to us is worship. Worship is remembering the king, keeping, staying organized around the king who's purchased us out of exile and who one day will conquer exile. Worship is just remembering who God is, that God is God, that we're not, and that there's something bigger than the exile and the promises we're facing. And whether you're in a Christmassy mood or not, worship might be the thing that keeps you anchored. And for some of you, you might be in a hard season, and the songs you might need to sing might sound a little more melancholy. We sang a few minutes ago, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It's a great, great melancholy song. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Ransom, captive Israel, that mourns in lonely what? Lonely exile. Right. You feel the weight of exile. You feel the weight of living in a land that is not what it should be. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is just a great song that invites you into rejoicing, keeps you anchored in the God who is the Lord over the pain and the heartache and the brokenness and invites you into his, his joy and his peace. That, might, that song might need to be on loop for you this December. For all those of you, songs of joy and celebration might be a little bit more easily accessed. But for all of us, worship keeps us anchored in something bigger than our feelings, and that's really important. Good news, my friends. Your feelings are not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And so worship keeps us anchored in that good news. And for some of us, we need to hear that more than others. But for, for many of us, for all of us, worship keeps our spirits and our hearts organized and oriented around the God who is bigger than the ruins, bigger than the exile, bigger than your problems. And it's also bigger than the commercials. 
and bigger than the thinner offerings on, of popular culture of warm, fuzzy holidays and sort of picture-perfect family photos and those sort of things. None of those are bad things, but there's something bigger. There's, bigger, there's something bigger happening on Christmas, something bigger happening than just a warm, fuzzy picture. There's something happening. There's a God who has come to making all things new, to redeeming people out of exile. We lament. We worship. Third thing, we work. Work is just doing the next wise thing that's ours to do. Work. Doing the next wise thing that's ours to do. Scripture says that God's prepared good works in advance for you to do. And very often, that's where God meets us. Very often, God meets us in, this, in those good works. Just because we can't fix exile on our own power doesn't mean there's a good and meaningful work for us to do. Some of us are in places where we seem to keep working. Some of you are in therapy and in counseling, working through really hard stuff. That's really good work. Blessings on you as you do that. Some of us just have relationships we need to attend to. There's kids to raise and marriage to invest in. There's, there's presents to buy and trees to decorate. And some of you have got jobs and employers and there's good work that you need to do there. That's good work. Some of you need to do the good work of finding other good work to do. Finding a job is a full-time job. That's good work too. We can't be the hope. We can't end exile. But there is good work that we sometimes all of us need to do that God's prepared in advance for us to do. And sometimes that's the place where God's meeting us is right there in that work. And for those of us that, for whom we're in a hard season, a hard stretch, that can be really, really difficult. The psalmist has this great, Psalm 127 has this great phrase. Those who sow in tears will reap with rejoicing. Those who sow in tears will reap with rejoicing. In other words, sometimes the, the, the tears and the working happen at the same time, right? Sometimes you sow with tears. Sometimes you water your work with your tears. Sometimes you can't stop working. Sometimes you say, you know what? You know what, tears? You're coming along for the ride today while I go to work. That's all you can do. And there's a promise in the Psalms, right? There's principle in the Psalms that sowing in tears will reap with rejoicing. That is, there's things that God can do and do, will do on the other side of that work that's fruitful, that's life-giving, that you'll be great. The future you will thank you for being willing to continue to do the work even with the tears. So we work during the Advent season, eyes wide open, how God might want to meet us during the Advent season, because he's prepared good work in advance for you to do over the next four weeks. And finally, we wait. We wait. Waiting is prayerful expectation without agenda of hope's intervention. Waiting is just, in, in the scripture, just prayerful expectation without agenda of hope's intervention. The God of hope is going to keep coming and keep coming and keep showing up. While we're lamenting and worshiping and working, we just trust that the living hope will make his, his presence known at some point along the way. We are trusting that that hope is active and we are again releasing our agenda for where that has to show up, how it has to show up. We're open to being surprised in any number of ways. We are looking anywhere and everywhere for the God of hope to be faithful. So we wait and we worship and we work, we lament and we wait some more, trusting and praying, crying out, O come, O come, Emmanuel. How do we cultivate, how do we cultivate hope here in exile? How do we live with this? How do we actually engage with this unspeakable joy that we talk about, this layer of permanent joy available? Four things. Lament. Grief over what should not be directed to a God who agrees. One day we'll make all things new. We worship. We fight to keep our hearts, our spirits aligned with the God of the universe. No matter what's going on around us, no matter how we're feeling, we work, do the next wise thing that's ours to do, and we wait. Prayerful expectation without agenda. That hope will come to us. Lament, worship, work, wait. Can you say that with me? Lament, worship, work, wait. One more time. Lament, worship, work, wait. One more time. Lament, worship, work, wait. See, there's a cadence to that, right? There's a rhythm to that. And you're gonna, you'll need to lean into 
pieces of this at different points over the next several weeks, my hope and my prayer is that you might cultivate practices that help you to access the unspeakable joy, the deep hope available to you and to me, even here amongst the challenges we face here under, in exile, still struggling, but knowing there's a God who's bigger than that struggle, who invites us to look to him, to lament, to worship, to work, and to wait. And we sit with open arms, open hands, no agenda, no expectation, no, no expectation other than hope will move, and God is at work. And that's our hope as we head into Advent season 2022. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we are thankful that you're faithful. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for having a messy genealogy. Thank you so much for having people in your history that weren't polished. Thank you so much for working through long seasons where it seemed like nothing was happening. Lord God, thank you that you're faithful. You are faithful. You are faithful. Thank you for the hope that's available to us in Matthew's genealogy. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are feeling like they're in exile this season. It just feels hard right now. Lord, would they hear this word of hope and would it give them hope? Lord, I pray for my friends who are here who aren't sure they believe any of this. Lord, maybe their first step before they get to lament, before they get to worship and working and waiting, the first step might be repentance to sort of turn away from life apart from you, to, to embrace that there's a God who has come to bring redemption, to bring that living hope. Lord, thank you so much for my friends who are here who aren't sure they believe any of this. With the promise of Christmas breaking into the challenges of exile, would that ring true in our hearts and our minds and our spirits? Lord, with this room, would our homes be full of genuine celebration, of real joy? We invite the Lord who is king over all joy and king over all peace and king over all hope. We invite you to reign and rule in our hearts this Advent season. We pray these things in Jesus' strong mighty name. Amen. Amen. Amen.